I'm looking at all of you. It's not any one person. It's good to see all of you tonight. Um, behind me is our set for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Vacation Bible School, uh, where we're going to take the children back in time, and they're going to find out that things, the good old days were horrible, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's no hope in the present either. Our only hope is in Christ in the future. I think that's what we're doing with VBS, something like that, anyway. We're, it's a time travel theme, so I uh, be there or be square next week, but... Um, a lot of hard work went into this and is going into this. We're thankful for all that effort. Well, we're here tonight because uh, we continue in the, in the Christian way of life to... Um, don't touch that. We're here tonight because we need to be fed so that we can fight, so we can continue the, 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 the fight that God has us in, not fighting Him, fighting with Him, and we're studying the mission we're, this series is called On Mission, and tonight we're talking about what the mission has to do with our troubles. Uh, I'm calling it the mission despite the storm. Because when, when trouble arises, a lot of times we think, that's it. I'm just going to deal with trouble. But that's not what we see in the Scriptures. Trouble is part of the context of what you're dealing with while you're on mission. That's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's uh, seek God's grace and favor in equipping us to know Him on these terms tonight. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John tells us what to do about personal sin as believers. What a believer in Jesus Christ needs to do about sin is not pretend like we don't sin. And it's not to really even just say, I'm a sinner, although that's a good thing to say. We are sinners. But um, there's a personal thing that's happened every time we commit a personal sin. There's a transgression of God's perfect righteousness. And the solution to that transgression is clean, it's cleansing, it makes us dirty. And we're believer priests and we need God to clean us up so we can minister in that which he's delegated to us. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer because he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins if we confess them. Let's pray. God, as we celebrate you every moment of our lives, as we worship you and seek to glorify you with all that you've given us, uh, we have to constantly be mindful of our poverty, of our weakness, of our hopelessness in and of ourselves. And the energy of our flesh, what we bring to the table is worse than worthless. But because your spirit lives in us, Father, we can bring a righteous praise to you. Uh, We can glorify you as you deserve in a supernatural capacity because God the Spirit Himself enables us. And so we seek that work of Your Spirit tonight as we consider what Your Scriptures have to say about how we live our lives despite suffering here as we conduct the mission to which You've placed us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I have to admit to you as we get started that I did not remember... As I was writing this and preparing this, I did not remember while they were building this just uh, a few feet away, I did not remember that I wouldn't have my overhead and my normal operations. So I'm actually going to have to think faster and talk slower than I usually do. 
and that isn't likely, <laughs> but we can try as I look across the room at, what I'm tr- at my notes, which is fine. All right, so we're talking about the mission despite the storm, and I, fo- I found a pretty good picture a young man had made, digital image he had uh, created um, of original artwork to show that there's problems and there are solutions, that there is the storm, our boat is cast on the waves, and there's a light that shows us the way, and that's a great description of the Christian life. If you look around anywhere but at Christ in your Christian life, if you look at people and that's your focus, if you look at details, if you look at circumstances, if you look at the things that somehow our flesh tells us they'll make us happy or complete, and you stop looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be very aware of the storm, eventually, if not immediately. And, but if you are in the middle of the great storm, and we are, and you look at that light, if you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, he teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 that we will be illuminated and you can manage, and that's his grace. So um, we are, as I'm saying here, confronted by a lot of problems in our Christian life. And what I want to do now is kind of think through what are those problems. It's usually for all my ministry career, it's been my habit to start with reading a Bible passage. We will get there. You can turn in your Bible to Matthew 14, but I do want to set it up. We're confronted by a lot of problems in our lives, and let's see if we can categorize them. Look, a white square on the screen so you can uh, know I'm about to say some text. (laughs) It's over here. All right, so categorizing our problems. The first thing is that we have troubling circumstances. What did I say here? Our trying circumstances that, that harry us. They're circumstances that may be a, a consequence of our choices. Very often, they're not from something we've chosen, and yet we find ourselves in this troubling situation. I told him not to take that turn, and yet here we are driving off the bridge. It's not your fault, but you find yourself in the situation. And so when we think about the hardships and the circumstances of life, I think the first thing that comes to mind, no matter how bad you have it in other realms, people are a problem. Not all the people, at least not all the time, but all the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time. You know the deal. People are a problem. People hurt. People get angry. People shout at you. That's a picture of a, of a boss. He's a person, and he becomes a problem. That's a professional, a very professional boss right there giving you uh, the business. Um, can, you, can you see the screen? This is in the way? Uh-huh, uh-huh, see? I knew it. Can you see it now? What's that? I'm fine. No, thank you for thinking of me. And, uh, but now you can't see again, but that's okay. And um, the folks at home, what are you doing there? Get over here. So anyway, um, no, I'm, I'm thrilled you're with us. And uh, the people watching the video, they get the irony that uh, they couldn't possibly be here live because it's recorded and they're seeing a recording sometime in the future from when I'm saying this. Isn't that crazy? It's a time machine, VBS, folks. Anyway, um, you have people problems in your trying circumstances. You have trouble from people, and we all know that. But we also know that one of the great troubles in life is not having enough as we think, to do what we need or want to do in terms of money. It's just a suggestion of one of the many problems. A photo- photograph of, whoa, 
it's not funny. There we go. Of money problems. There we go. Money with handcuffs. We're in trouble. We're chained to something. Same guy took this photograph that generated the, um, the lighthouse scene, interestingly enough, and gave that image away for free, and I paid him for it. Health. When your health is a problem, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, right? And it's a problem. I'd still say um, if you're in the middle of a health struggle and you've also got people problems, a lot of times, unless it's really acute with the health thing, the people problem overwhelms you. By the way, that has a degenerative effect on your health because you're worried and you're stressed and your system is compromised and so forth. These are the problems of life that I'm not even talking about cause and effect. I'm saying you have them. They're part of your life and they can become overwhelming. People, uh, oh, health problems. There you go. There's your health, a picture of a health problem. See the picture of the health problem? Yeah. The kitty cat had to go to the vet. All right. This would have been a lot better with the big projector. Now, you fill in the blank what the problem is that you're facing that you have to deal with. It's a storm. It gives you stomach acid. You know in your thinking you're not supposed to think about that. You're supposed to think about the Lord. We're supposed to turn our eyes upon Jesus. You know you should. You think, you, you, you think about doing it. And yet you feel compromised and overwhelmed by the problem. Not just me. I know you, you do it too. It's the same for all of us. And so uh, the, the fact is, you're not going to push a button and this be done quickly. You're going to have to work on this. We're going to have to deal with this and say, okay, I've got a problem. It is a real thing and I need to think through it. Not just think about it and say, well, this shouldn't bother me. You know, problems. Another category uh, that causes our problem is our limitations. These go hand in hand with our circumstances. Our limitations. How are we limited? One of the great stresses in life is when you don't know what's going to happen next. A lack of knowledge or understanding is very often a cause for our discomfort. You know, God knows that if you knew the information that you really want to know, like how's this going to turn out, he knows that you would be more at ease with your situation, but he still doesn't let you know and he holds that information back. You know, he does that. You only get to know what you get to know. I think that if you put uh, what can be known versus what we, we do know and, and being very knowledgeable as, as much as we can, you put the two on a scale and what you don't know is vastly outweighing what you can know. There's an invisible war we're going to talk about that causes problems. And you, can't, you don't know what's going on in that. Well, I just feel oppressed. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you're under oppression. Every piece of telephonic equipment that I touch does, messes up the communications this last two weeks. Every time I pick up a phone. And it's not just because I'm right here on the street, this mile right here where uh, we are not allowed to have any kind of uh, cellular communication here. I mean, maybe that's demonic oppression. I don't know. I'm not given eyes to see that. And so I I know that God has it and I trust him with it, for example. All right. So the limitations in our knowledge and understanding, also the limitations in our strength. We can't physically lift that. I can't get there. I can't do, I don't have the resources to do the thing that I need to do. And when you put these limitations against the problems in your circumstances, uh, you feel overwhelmed. You just, I, this is too much. I think that God, doesn't, isn't this true though? God brings us to the end of ourselves. 
He shows you that you need his spiritual resources because your physical strength comes to an end. You need his spiritual enablement because your emotional reservoir has run dry. And he does this, and that's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, the thorn in the flesh, he showed me that I can't, and he, he has to do it through me. All right, but we have more, more problems in our lives. And now let's talk about the war. One helpful writer, Donald Gray Barnhouse, called it the invisible war. Another word, another phrase for this categorical teaching from the scriptures is the angelic conflict, meaning that the enemy of God is an angel, a former cherub who is now known as Satan or as the devil in the New Testament. And he's the chief of the fallen angels and he's leading a rebellion that continues to this day against God and against God's people. And he hates the human race. I think it's probably because we're created in God's image and the angels are never said to be in God's image. And I think there's an issue there and I don't know what it is. And I know there's been a lot of speculation through the years and theological leaps that theologians have taken, but I think it's very safe to say that what God is doing with us is directly impacting what he's doing with the angels. And I get that from the book of Job, for example. Okay, now, in the invisible war, we are dealing with sinfulness. Now let's talk about cause and effect. A lot of times, the circumstances are brought on by our own foolishness. Our own bad choices are causes that bring about bad effects, aren't they? Our sinfulness. Sometimes we get angry because we are facing our limitations, and our circumstances from this other column are weighing down on us, and we, and, we, and we pop. It's understandable, you know. He was going through a thing there, and his circumstances were this way, and his limitations were this way. So you could see why he was sinful. Yeah, you understand why a sinner sinned, given his circumstances, but you don't say it was right. You just say, yeah, we're sinners. But anger, for example, big problem. Resentment, bitterness. How about the tendency we have in ourselves, in our sin nature, to kind of default in the flesh to autonomy? You know that word autonomy, self-law? That's what that means, self-law. That you're going to make it yourself. You're going to do it yourself and without dependence upon God. In other words, I'm going to be a branch, but I'm not going to be connected to the vine. You know what I mean? That's what we're talking about with autonomy. And we do this. We forget that, hey, we have a creator we're serving. We have a spiritual life we're living. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's not a suggestion to walk by the Spirit. That's a command. You know, and we neglect, as the writer of Hebrews says, our so great salvation because we default at times to autonomy. You know, that old hymn, Have Mine Own Way, Lord. (laughs) Let me have it my way. Okay. Sometimes with with the anger, I'm just thinking through stuff that I know you're all guilty of. Uh, Sometimes when we have that anger problem, we let it, we verbalize it. It starts in our heart and then we say it out of our mouths. And then as Jesus said, we're defiled by what we've said, not what goes into our mouth, but what comes out. You Jews that are worried about the the legal uh, nutrition code need to recognize that you're all much filthier from how you speak than from what you are or are not eating. Okay, Is, is how Jesus talks about it. So, so we've got limitations, and uh, we, have, uh, we have circumstances that, uh, that, that, direct, that, that then impinge on our sinful tendencies, and you can see all these things kind of fall out. And, and a lot of times, you're going you're gonna to break down, okay, and not perform as you should because of a combination of all these factors, right? We're in a war name the sinfulness category. I mean, this is just a suggested uh, set of things that you might consider. Now, 
We know that we're dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we just cover the flesh, now the world. Satan's deceived system of false communication is a problem that all the children, I like to say that if, as I've been a pastor of this church and I've watched, the world is a meat grinder and it is chewing up our children. It is especially destroying young women in terms of sexuality and it's especially destroying young men in terms of being masculine. It's trying to turn women sexually into thinking like men when they're not hormonally or by design equipped to be that way. And it's turning men who are supposed to lead and first of all govern themselves into emotional louts who can't do anything but please themselves. Uh, that's the world. That's the culture. I'm, I'm, I'm not describing, Samuel, your generation, the future of our country. I'm describing what's happening right now. This is the ruling uh, set. And these people are raising the next generation of louts and confused women. The invisible attack of God's enemy is what I mean by Satan, the devil attacking. We don't know uh, how his attacks work. We know that what they do, and largely they're deceptive. And what's the great diabolical deceptive implication that God isn't good and he's not taking care of you. Now, I know none of you ever believes that, that God isn't good and he's not taking care of me, but do you ever complain? Do you ever say things aren't going as they should? Do you ever say that uh, this is awful in my life and you just grouse? I I know you don't do it where I hear you because you know somewhere deep down inside you're not supposed to. But think about it when we do and when we slide into that little bit of self-pity and say, wow, it's not going like I want it to go and it's not going like it should go. Partly what we're implying is that God isn't good and he's not taking care of me. The Lord is my shepherd and he's not so good at it. Right? And so these are the problems. Introduction complete. Now, the question is, when you hurt yourself, it becomes a focus. Are your problems the focus of your life? Are your problems the focus of your life? Well, at times, yes. If I stubbed my toe the other day, I, I was in a friend's house and I, it was early in the morning and I transitioned from the uh, living room to the kitchen and there was an inch up that I didn't know about. And I'm not really functional usually until around, you know, right at 10 o'clock on Sunday, but um, I, I, it was early and I was moving quickly and faster than you might imagine I could. And uh, my left uh, foot did not recognize the step up. And pretty much all the weight that I had to offer in the moment went right into one of my toes in that transition. And you know, I know about it every minute of every day since. This has been about a month. I know that I did that to myself. And I haven't seen a doctor. I don't plan on going to the podiatrist about this. That What they're going to say is, wow, you really hurt your foot. <laughs> and uh, it's just going to have to heal over time. But wow, it hurts. And when, it, when that happened, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the Lord. <laughs> I really was. I was like, Lord, <laughs> did you know that I wanted to go running later? Or, or did, did, you know, I guess I wasn't supposed to be as active this summer as I thought because this is going to really slow me down. It has. And uh, God knows what he's doing. But what I'm saying is when you hurt yourself, when you stub your toe, that pain becomes the focus. It's impossible for it to be otherwise the way we're made. But then pretty much the pain doesn't go away, but we get used to it. And then the question is, is it the focus? And when it's acute, of course, you, you just hold on to 
save me, Lord, help me. But when, when you get where you can kind of shoulder it and it's that consistent, this is just how life is now, the question is, is it your focus? Are your problems your focus? To the extent that the problems that you face in this life become your focus, okay, to that extent you can't handle your problems. You cannot, you cannot live the life you've been called to because they're not supposed to be the focus. As I said, Matthew 14, please. Very familiar passage to us. I hope it's familiar to you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. That would be in the Bible, the, fourth, the first gospel, Matthew, chapter 14, verse 22. Let me set up the story. It's, it's in the life of Jesus in, among the disciples in which he has uh, had the long day of ministry, as we call it. In this same chapter, in the first portion, John the Baptist is beheaded. One of the most horrific events in the Gospels is the, un, the, the unrighteous killing of John the Baptist in the beginning of Matthew 14. In the middle of Matthew chapter 14, you have the feeding of the 5,000, as it's called, because it's 5,000 men. 5,000. And so um, they're weary. They've been ministering, healing, teaching all day and uh, presenting the Gospel of the Kingdom. And they're weary, and it's about dusk, it's dinner time, and they're like, oh. The sun is down. We're, we're free for ministry. Uh, uh, Jesus sent them off to dinner. The sun wasn't quite down, but I'm just saying it's dinner time. And uh, so, so we're saved by the bell. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You, you haven't even started working. You, you're, you're in this till 6 a.m. easy. It's 6 p.m., but you're, you're going to be working all night. They don't know that yet. They're good. Hey, they're going to be working all night long. So what happens? Well, uh, he teaches them a lesson about his sufficiency by taking two sardines and five tortillas and turning them, five little flatbread loaves and, and, uh, and two little fish, turns them into enough food to have food left over and many baskets and so forth. And they're tired. And Jesus says, okay, you know what? I want you to uh, go and, and babysit a little storm I'm going to whip up on the Sea of Galilee um, and row across it and I'll meet you over there later. Not telling you how I'm getting there. And, uh, and he goes up on a mountain to pray because, see, he's tired and he's, he's physically in his humanity worn out, but he's got priorities. So as a disciplined worshiper of the creator of his father, even though he is also the creator, do, do you, is it right to say Jesus worships the father? Well, he lives ever to make intercession on our behalf. He's praying. So uh, if that's not worship, okay. But he does. He goes and prays all through his ministry. And so um, he goes up on the hill to pray in verse 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. So uh, this is uh, the setting for this awesome story, which I hope you know is where Jesus and Peter walk on water. Okay, Uh, so... um, When it was evening, he was there alone. There's a lot we can say about this. There's a lot to reflect on and just the fact that sometimes you need to be alone with your father. And it's great to get together and pray corporately. I mean, we don't need to do less of that as a church. We need to do more of that. But um, notice that Jesus has ministered corporately and now he's going to do it individually. And it's a priority for him and that's an example for us. Now the disciples are rowing against a storm, but the boat was already a long distance from the land battered by the waves for the wind was blowing against them that's what it means contrary it means that it's it's countering their efforts so the wind is contrary 
And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He had completed his prayers, and now he is walking to meet them. Now, I believe Jesus has arranged this thorough wearing out of the disciples by rowing against this, this, this wind because at the end of the story, it stops instantly. Once he's back with them and the little lesson is learned, the, the wind is completely over and it's like the exercise is over. It's, it seems to me like a clear episode of a training opportunity that Jesus set up for them. So, uh, and there's a lot here for us in terms of, of uh, thinking the way God wants us to think about obedience to him, about capability, and about our problems. Okay, so... He came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. That's their first response. And they said, like a good pagan, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. I've had people argue with me all day from their experiences that there are ghosts, the dead do come back and talk to you and so forth. And um, I want to say that, no, this is just pagan thinking. This is just how the world thinks. And let me launch on a little bit of a, of a side note on this real quick on the ghosts, the ghost thing. The ghosts are dead people who come back in spirit form. That's what a ghost is. That's what this word means, uh, the spirit idea of, of, a, of a dead person. And so there's a shadowy image that looks like the person, but it, it's their ghost. Okay. Um, all the pagan worship beginning in Babel, which became Babylon, it, it all came, all the systems that are alternatives to the worship of the Creator came from that event described in Genesis chapter 11. Okay, That's where man said, not God's way, but my way, and the city of man, Babylon, was born. And God confused the languages, you know. That beca- began, as you look at the Babylonian worship system, it is the worship of ancestors. It is the deification, or as the, the big word is apotheosis, of humans who died and then became divine, divinized. And there's the worship of the mother and child cult, which is a counterfeit based on Genesis 3.15, I believe, that Satan uh, uh, corrupted the human race with back there in Babylon. And um, that's why we don't do Lent. That's why we're not worried about hot, hot cross buns and weeping for semiramis and all the things that have been Christianized that are really just pagan practices. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a great conversation. The best book to read about is called The Two Babylons by Heslop. And he probably goes a little bit too far in calling the Roman Catholic Church Babylonian worship. I mean, I think he goes too far with that. But he does explain where a lot of the traditions that the, that the, the, the Roman Church brought in from the pagans that they took over where those where those traditions came from and so if you're ever wondering why no ashes on ash wednesday and why we don't worry about fish on friday and all that uh, during lent it's because that is from the babylonian system and i don't care if you put christian dressing on it it's from a it's from a pagan myth about uh, the mother and child cult and it has nothing to do with christ except as a counterfeit now 
The reason I'm talking about Babylonian religion and the pantheons of the Greeks and the Romans and the Norse and all these systems of mythological worship of, of nature, but as spirits that are humans, but they're superhuman. This, I, in my understanding, it all goes back to the ancestor worship of Nimrod and Semiramis and this um, this original ancestor worship. So when you start talking about ghosts of humans and you see cultures that, that emphasize ancestor worship and then you see pantheons of gods, I think these are all related and throw the phallic cult in there too. It's all part of the same tendency that humans have had. What's the greatest thing you can think of? Grandpa. Well, let's worship him. That's how we are. We think of something we, we're not creative as, as we'd like to think. We think of some, well, Nimrod was a great man. Well, let's worship him. And then you end up with ancestor worship and eventually um, the pantheons that, that grew out of that. That's my um, quick summary of paganism. And uh, th- they're thinking like pagans when they say that it's a ghost. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I personally do not believe that you are ever haunted by family members that have died. But I do believe that you can be oppressed by demons who are permitted for whatever reason God knows I don't know to, to, to mimic and distract you and to make you think that you're receiving contact from, uh, from passed away loved ones. I believe in demon activity. I don't think that there are any extraterrestrial life forms like earthly humans out there, but I do believe angels uh, inhabit the second heaven, that'd be space, and I think that, um, that they're bothering us all the time. So uh, I don't believe in UFOs, I do believe in demonic activity to distract humans. And by the way, if you convince, and most people probably now believe, I think in America, uh, at least all the people that don't believe the way you and I do about God as our creator, most people are going to embrace the fact of extraterrestrial life. And that is really a problem for the gospel because Jesus incarnated as a human and he died for the sins of the world and then we are marked out to rule with him over the angels in eternity. And that kind of locks up all the creation God told us about. So what about the, uh, the people on the other planets? The gospel starts to be kind of small when we're talking about the God of the universe incarnated as a human. Man is more important than, uh, than the science fiction people want you to think. Anyway, the, the ghost is, um, is a pagan response that they have. And so immediately Jesus spoke to them. And it's kind of a rebuke, but it's a command. He says... Take courage, it is I. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Command, literally, take courage is a command. Statement of fact, it is I. Revelation from God the Son, it is, it is, this is who it is. And then command, do not be afraid. So positive command, information, negative command. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. And then Peter does something that, um, oh, there you go. meant to show you that. That's a little shot from the Action Bible, uh, published by David C. Cook, 2010. It's a great little, it's the best kid's Bible if you want to do pictures. The more I read, the less I'm interested in doing pictures personally of God. But I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have a pretty uh, blue scarf over his um, perfectly flowing uh, thing. It was probably a lot more um, (laughs) uh, shoe leather. 
experience than, than we'll dramatically portray it. But anyway, Peter did actually walk on water. And that seems like a miracle to walk on water. Stop that. Stop that. It seems like a miracle to walk on water, but um, there's an even greater miracle in verse uh, 30, seeing the wind. (laughs) That's kind of a joke. How do you see the wind? He sees the effects of the wind, and it's a squall on the sea. I mean, they've been fighting this thing, and it's not a long trip, but they've made all night of it. And so... Um, he starts looking at the choppiness of the waves, at the, at the, the blast in his face of the, of the water. And nobody in this situation would fault him for fearing the storm. It's a fearful storm. That's the point we started with tonight. There's always the storm. The question is, what's your focus? If you focus on Christ, you can weather the storm. If you take yourselves off of Christ, you get swallowed by the storm. And that's what happens um, Seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me, which is a good thing to say to Jesus. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this is why I think this was all a part of a training exercise. In verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. This was all an orchestrated, planned training event by the great teacher, the disciple-maker, Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful opportunity. And, uh, you know, he knew what Peter was going to say and do, and Peter did just exactly what uh, he needed to do. Peter gets to be the, uh, the object lesson that you and I learn. Not only is Jesus God, not only does he have this power, Go downstairs right now. Right, right now. Go downstairs right now. Not only does he have all of this power, but he is uh, the one you have to focus on or you sink. Okay, so I want to think biblically with you. Practice thinking biblically about life. My question tonight, the topic of this message, uh, the title of this message is, um, is the mission despite the storm. Are you supposed to focus on your problems or do you have something else that you're supposed to do regardless of your problems? Is the Christian life problem solving, in other words? Is that what we're doing or does the scriptures present something else that we're supposed to be about that we can be guaranteed we'll have problems as we do it? You see what I mean? And, and we've, we've talked, there are many problems and they, they don't go away, but your perspective about them does change and God enables you to manage them. But that's not what you're here for is just to manage your problems. So, thinking biblically about life. So first of all, if we focus on the commands of Scripture, like Jesus is the Word who became flesh, who speaks forth the Word of God, that's what He is, and that's, who we, that's what He says. Uh, in verse 27, you have His commands, right? You have, take courage, it is I, and do not be afraid. So if I gave you a quiz, we paused the video, said, okay, everybody take out a piece of paper. What is Peter and the disciples responsible for? What are they supposed to to do according to the Lord Jesus. First thing they're supposed to do is take courage. And the second thing they're supposed to do is not be afraid. You're like, well, does he really mean it like that kind of commander? Is he just patting their hand and encouraging them? They're there. It's me. I'm here. Don't, you don't need to be afraid. I take it from the way the story ends. Why did you, why did you doubt me? He, he holds Peter accountable for sinking. Peter, 
you're supposed to be walking on water here. We, we, we agreed. You said, I can, you, if it's me, you can walk on water. What is wrong with you? See, he told them what to do. Take courage. Take courage. Do not be afraid. Now, don't talk to your brothers and sisters this way. Don't, when someone's struggling, come on. Hey, what's wrong with you? Take courage. But you can point them gently to the commands of Scripture. We are actually forbidden to fear. We're forbidden, except to the Lord. We're, we're forbidden to from worry. Fear, fear thou not, for I'm with you. Do not worry about anything, but in all things, through prayer and supplication. These are commands of Scripture. Jesus says it here. Why are you afraid? It's me. I made everything. I'm holding you together by the word of my power. Are you afraid of disintegrating? Because I'm not letting that happen. What, what are you afraid of? It's easy to say, isn't it? I love being a preacher. Like just saying stuff that's easy to say. Then when it's time to live it, and you really have to believe it because the circumstance is really fear, fearsome, the beauty is when God gives you the grace to actually have this courage. And it comes from focusing on Jesus Christ. So step two, I would say, is don't skip step number one. Don't forget that Jesus said, even though, well, there was a storm. He said, take courage, don't be afraid. Take courage, don't be afraid. Now, in verse 31, Jesus holds them accountable for what he had commanded. Verse 31, he says, in, here in my Bible in red, you have little faith, why did you doubt? That's not nice. He belittles Peter's lack of faith. That, they're there. He's not saying they're there when he says take courage. He's saying, hey, you got me. It's me. And by the way, at the end, they did get the big picture message. It's the, who is this man? He's, he's God in the flesh. He's the one that can control the storm. So you have little faith. And then the, the question of accountability. Why did you doubt? Now, this is one of the great techniques that of all, of all self-accountability. When you think about, okay, um, uh, when, you, when you go to First uh, Corinthians 11 and uh, judge yourself so that you not be judged. The self-evaluation. We're not called to go and evaluate each other. Romans says at the end, uh, don't, don't you know, welcome the, the weaker believer, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, right? So you're, I'm not befriending you so that I can come square you away and tell you how you need to think correctly. Although we do have a role of encouragement and, and at times correction as necessary, but it's not, we're not, we're not, looking for opportunities to, be, to self-righteously uh, assert our dominance over one another. And that's, the, uh, that's a satanic impulse. It's, it's the flesh. It has nothing to do with the spiritual life. Uh, but, but Jesus asks a question of Peter that Peter's then supposed to look at himself and say, well, why did I doubt? W- what happened here? What was the cause of my failure? And the cause was I stopped looking at you. I stopped doubting because I stopped looking. How do you apply that in your life? You, uh, you, you start doubting the things of God because you stop listening to the Word of God. How do I look at Jesus? It's not a statue. With, it's not a statue of a cross with or without Jesus on it. That's not how you look at Him. The way you look at Him is you listen to what He has to say. He's speaking through 66 books inspired by the Holy Spirit of Christ. That's what he's called, the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that's how we look at Jesus. Now, test me on this. Is your Bible time about something other than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your time in the Word of God to open it and spend your life plumbing its steps? Is it something other than an occupation with Jesus Christ? 
hope not. I assume, I know this group, it's not true for you, right? Is your, is your Bible time, okay, so is it that hard for me to say that uh, you're not going to have that focus on Christ without the supernatural content that the Spirit has inspired through the apostles and prophets? Not a statue, it's not a picture, not a chain email. Send this to 15 people and God will bless you. It's not even Jesus calling. <gasps> Don't anybody raise your hand. That's the worst thing that's been written, I think, in the, in the, in the last hundred years. I've seen people that I, think, that I would think would know better quote it. But when I say it's the worst thing, it is a woman, and that's not the problem, but it, is, it happens to be a woman who is saying, Jesus is saying these things to you right now. And she paraphrases scripture sometimes, but not always, and quotes as though she's quoting Jesus, but it's what she is writing. That's what John did when he wrote, this is what Jesus said. And I believe John, but is it Sarah Young, is that who wrote this thing? I, I really think we need to ask, what, what in the world am I reading? Read what John wrote. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he does know exactly what Jesus said and wants you to, wants you to know. Anyway, uh, uh, but, but hey, that, that sold a lot of print. I mean, a lot of people have read it, and a lot of people felt, felt closer to God because Jesus said something that Sarah said. Anyway, um, why did you doubt? I wasn't looking at you, Lord. Why do we doubt? Because we're out of the word. We're not positive to the word of God. We're distracted. Not you, but sometimes you. Sometimes. Anybody know the feeling of needing to be in the word and not feeling like being in the word? I know I need to, but I don't feel like it. Know that? That's a spiritual laziness that uh, has basically choked the entire American church. Um, we're, we are watching historic events right now in American Christendom, American Christian history. Uh, there are things happening that um, we're, they're happening faster than we thought with one of the greatest, largest organizations to pr- proclaim the inerrancy of Scripture ever assembled, and it's called the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm not a Baptist by uh, affiliation, and that bothers Baptists that I say that. I, I'm Baptistic, but I don't need a flag out front that says Baptist. And so they're like, well, nope, not. And, and I, okay, found that out at a Baptist school. And I love them, but I, denominationally, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a non-slash-anti-denominationalist. So um, anyway, um, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is being taken over by the cultural decay and rot of, of, of relativism. And, and the, the heroes that have stood for inerrancy against the tide of the last 30 years where all the other major denominations fell aside and let go of the Bible and they held on to it, they're going to get shaken loose. It's, it's, the source of it is scholarship and it's called post-conservative evangelicalism. Post-conservative evangelicalism. As my, uh, I think it was my former pastor used to say, post-conservative evangelical is like a recoilless rifle. Recoilless rifles aren't. What happened to you? I just got hit by a recoilless rifle. <laughs> okay, post-conservative event, it's post-conservative conservative. Doesn't make sense, but that's what's going on, and that's what dominates your theological seminaries um, that are the big flagship schools of evangelicalism. So we're in a dark time, um, and, uh, you know, the, the rapture's happening tonight anyway, or, or you know, for, uh, whenever it happens. I mean, it's, it, it, you got to live like it's, it's any moment now. 
And, um, but it, you know, historically, we're seeing some really sad things because we're letting go of the Word of God. And that's always what happens. But um, sad to see the Southern Baptist Convention, which theologically in its scholarship and its leadership has really held the line on the Bible as inspired and inerrant um, against, you know, the, the flow of the other mainline denominations. In verses 28 through 30, though, you see why Peter did sink. He just lost, he lost his perspective. He lost perspective. He got his eyes on the problems. And he started thinking about the problems and the problems and the problems and the problems. And so when you're focused on the wrong thing, you can't see Jesus. And you're, in, you're unstable and you sink. And that's, that's a great illustration. That's what I'm trying to do here as we think biblically about life. So we want to take our lives, our spiritual walk with Christ beyond our problems. We want to take it beyond our problems, obviously. Even though your problems are going to be with you until you don't have them anymore, and that's when you meet Jesus face to face. Not only does God want you to trust him through the storm, but he wants you, like Jesus, as we said last week, to be about his business. See, it, you didn't show up and say, oh, Lord, how can I suffer today? And I'm trusting you through the suffering, and I'm a victor because I trust you through the suffering. That's going on while you're on mission. He's got work for you to do, and it isn't handle the problem. See? That, and so what I'm saying is sometimes we, we shoot a little low. We, 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 we say, I'm going to make a D on the exam. I'm going to study hard and make a D. Hey, you didn't, even, you didn't even place when you just said, I'm going to solve problems. When your life is focused on Jesus Christ, you discover that God has a plan for you which is beyond problem solving. And how do you do that? We come to this conclusion by reading the Bible and saying, what is the emphasis here? What is the Bible's emphasis? And it turns out it's not, how do I feel about my problems? The Bible and the Word of God, I mean, the Word of God and the walk by the Spirit will transform you and how you handle your problems. Absolutely. But this is just equipping you for the fight that you actually have to fight. The goal, in other words, is not to grow up, by, for another example. The goal is not to grow up. That's, I mean, that's a good thing. We do want to grow up, but that's not, we're not there yet. Grow up and make something of your life is what we tell the kids, right? Hey, you know, you've grown up and you've done great and you're 40 and you're living in the basement. No, that's, that's something wrong here. You're grown and you're doing something with your life. You're handling the challenges that are on your plate while you do something with your life. And this is the spiritual life. This is how I'm illustrating, but this is what the Bible does with you. Have you ever considered the difference between how you and I will emphasize with stub toe or the herd or whatever in our lives as opposed to what the Bible emphasizes? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever said, okay, so this is what I want to talk about. And then you read the Bible somewhere like, it doesn't talk about this at all. And what, what do people do with that? Today in our culture, people say irrelevant. I'm worried about this and you're over here preaching Ezekiel and it doesn't have any impact on me. It's irrelevant. No, no, no. We're emphasizing like pagans. We're thinking like pagans. We're not on mission. We're not thinking like God wants us to think about what's important. So how do you come to know God's emphasis? Point one, you often get focused on our troubles and problems because we hurt. We've already said that. Point two, God often uses that sense of trouble to draw us back to him. We come to the end of ourselves. We, oh yeah, I've been trying to do it myself and God showed me I can't. Hopefully you know that experience. If you don't, stay tuned, it's coming. 
All right, because you're weak and you're broken and, and, and as strong as you are, we have weaknesses and we fall short. So, so God often uses this trouble, this hurt to draw us back to him. And sometimes, thirdly, he uses suffering to show us his provision and sufficiency. Sometimes we're not trying to do it on our own. We're like Paul saying, Lord, have your way and do it yourself. And then we get to see him part the, part the Red Sea. He does what, what we could never do. And he's bringing us to the limits of ourselves so that he can show us his sufficiency. But fourth, But before we even get to the pain from our struggles in this life, God has spoken clearly about his mission for us. There is a race to run before we ever talk about the obstacles and the handicaps and the injuries and all the things that are going to hinder your run. There is something that life is for that is not your troubles. In other words, there is a high bar God has set where even if you never had any problems in your life at all, you would still have this high bar that he set for you. And I've seen the mislocation of problems. We're just going to solve problems over being about my father's business. And what you're going to do is you're going to be about your father's business and then the real problems are going to start because you're going to be opposing the enemy of God and he's going to get more interested in opposing you. So it's not, we are going to, to need to adopt God's perspective and solve our problems. But that's not the objective of life. That's something you have to do as a basic spiritual life skill to live the life he's called you to live. Fifth, this fact explains a common difficulty that that my emphasis will be different from God's emphasis. Here's the common difficulty. Hopefully you've seen it before. Have you ever opened the Bible seeking comfort or encouragement and found it seemingly irrelevant to your crisis in the moment? Have you ever said, I'm struggling with this and I'm in a Bible reading plan. Open it to Matthew chapter 14. And uh, they're talking about John being beheaded. Well, that's a horrible story. That's, uh, that's not helping me in my situation. I'm reading my Bible, and, and, and here we are in Genesis 10 and the table of nations. I'm going to skim it. You know? What does this have to do with my problem? Lord, give me something I need, you know. And, and so what we're trying to go to the Bible and use it to solve our problems, but it doesn't answer our need. And we say and we, and the, the baby or the, the, the negative believer or the rejecting believer or the wayward believer that's looking for a spanking from his father says irrelevant. Arrogance kicks in and then you don't see what the Bible is and you don't know what it's doing and you're not willing to make the adjustment in yourself that that table of nations would give you. Wait a second. The God who made everybody is telling me where everyone's from. And reminding me that he is over the whole human race. He knows where everyone's from. He knows that we're all in rebellion against him. And so the Tower of Babel thing that gave us the table of nations and then Genesis 12, God calls one man out of this revolting, rebellious people right after the flood who are still rebelling against God. And he's going to work with us even though we're broken, even though we're rebellious. That's the big picture of why the table of nations and so forth. But when you're reading along and you're suffering and you're struggling... Uh, this isn't addressing my problem. Well, the problem is perspective, right? So um, point seven is I've certainly been here. I have opened the Bible in my life or, or turn on the Bible tape or whatever, and it hasn't spoken to what I wanted. Now, I told you before, very often, it'll speak directly to what I'm dealing with. But often it, it doesn't. It's like, well, I, I was trying to get help for this. And, 
I tried to shake the magic eight ball. That's a toy from the 1990s. You shake this magic eight ball. You try to play it like the Bible is a special fortune cookie to solve your problem. You shake it, and then you, you give you the answer. And you, it's like a Ouija board almost. You sh- the kids would shake the little, little, little plastic eight ball thing, and then a little dice would come. A little die would come up with writing on it and say yes, no, maybe no, I don't know, good question. And, um, and that was fun for about uh, not at all. All right. So... Uh, so you treat the Bible that way, and you find out you're just being arrogant. And um, maybe you find out sooner or later, but that's the problem. There's a mismatch in emphasis. I'm worried about me, and God's saying, hey, I'm doing something with you and with everything, and you need to get on board with my mission. So the reason, in part, that we have this disconnect is that the Bible's not about our suffering as much as it is about God's purposes of love and grace and the salvation of men. Isn't that the big picture of what the Bible's about? Isn't Genesis 3 and the fall of man and the promise of the seed of the woman and then how God develops that through the rest of history where we end up with the King of kings and Lord of lords seated on David's throne ruling over not just the millennial kingdom but the new heavens and new earth. He's the seed of the woman, David's greater son, seated and reigning over all of the universe under his father. Isn't that what the Bible's about? Yeah, puts humans in their place we're called to rule with christ we're uh jesus is became god became man he took on flesh so the reason that we find that the bible's not talking about my stuff is because we're not suffering in the mission we're suffering in the 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 hardships of this life and we want to act like the Bible is a, a problem-solving thing, but it's not. It's a mission manual. It's telling you what your life is really for. And yeah, these things are going to beset you. You're going to, you're going to have a caustic environment. Um, when, I was a, uh, when I was a teenager, I used to uh, get everything I could about West Point, all the movies, books, whatever. My mother had records from the Cadet Glee Club from the 60s. I used to listen to them on a record player, 78s, you know, and... Um, uh, so I was, I was all about West Point as a kid, and, um, and now I'm kind of about it still, kind of. And, um, <laughs> but uh, when you first, some of the old movies, they would teach the plebes this saying about leather. It's the definition of leather, and it's called knowledge. You have to say it, or you get in trouble. And when I was there, it was like the last of the last of the last of the upperclassmen hazing the, the lower classmen. And then they, they don't do it anymore. The kids are walking around chewing gum, high-fiving each other. It's, uh, they've got Netflix in their rooms. You know, it's, it's a totally different experience. Now, I'm pretty sure they're not allowed to smoke marijuana yet. But anyway, um, totally different experience. It's coming, I'm sure. It's medicinal. You know, the kids are stressed out. <laughs> but, uh, but here's the definition of leather. I learned it on, um, I think, the West Point story. And then I had to say it in plea beer. And they're like, Rosalind, why do you know that so well? I'm, like, I'm all about this stuff. Anyway. The definition of leather, the fresh skin of an animal, clean and divested of all hair, fat, and other extraneous matter, be immersed in a dilute solution of tannic acid, a chemical combination ensues. The gelatinous tissue of the skin is converted into a non-putrescible substance, impervious to and insoluble in water. This, sir, is leather. Why did they teach them that? It's a metaphor for plebe ear. You're supposed to suffer. It's a caustic environment. It's an acidic environment. that turn, you, They cut off all your hair. They run you till you don't have any more fat. You're, you're cleaned off of all the extra junk, supposedly. And then, because no dessert. <laughs> and then um, you're strengthened. And then you can't, you're, water, you're waterproof. You can bear this, the, the, the elements. That's the idea of what they used to be trying to do at West Point. I don't think they know about 
I don't know if they teach leather anymore, but I liked it. Anyway, you're in that kind of situation. You're going to face suffering. Does my illustration inform and encourage, hopefully, does it invite you to suffer with Christ? Because you're going to suffer, and that's going to be problems, but the point isn't that you handle your problems. The point is that as you handle your problems, what you're doing is focused on your Father's business. You and I have been called, point out, to participate in God's great plan of redemption of mankind. And that's a high calling. That is a high calling. It's awesome. In the context of our problems, you and I stay on mission. This is a picture taken, as you see, from one of the landing craft at Normandy, the, the beaches of Normandy, where the American troops are under machine gun fire and artillery fire. And they're seizing the beachhead and the largest military invasion, beach, uh, beach invasion ever done in human history that we know of. And we, we pretty much know. It was this massive undertaking. And it's a very dramatic thing that you see in this photograph here. Because you can't see the bullets and you can't smell the blood and you can't hear the screaming, but this is happening. There are bodies littered all over in front and on, the, on the beach there. Now, the guys did not get off the landing craft and say, well, what we got to do is deal with these machine gun bullets. Their job wasn't to show up and see if we could survive the machine gun bullets. That was seriously a problem. The artillery shells that were being dropped on their position and the fear of drowning because a lot of times the, the, the landing craft drivers didn't get it close enough. You've got all this equipment on because you're a mortarman or a machine gunner. You've got all this machine gun ammunition and you've you, you got to carry 150 pounds of stuff and then you're six feet underwater and you're five feet six. And uh, something, has, you either die or you drop your stuff and swim for your life. I mean, it, this was a horrible thing that these men had to do. But why'd they do it? They didn't do it to say, well, we made it across the beach. Right? I mean, they had to make it across the beach. And many people died so that we could talk about this tonight. And we need to honor that in passing as we, as we mention this. But, but what, what we're doing is kicking Hitler out of France. We've we got a mission here. And it's not to survive the machine gun bullets, although you have to do that to be the, on the mission. The mission is something greater. And, and in, in, on the mission, I've got to go take out this machine gun nest. And on the mission, we've got to go knock out the artillery tubes, as our soldiers did in the 4th Infantry and the Ranger Battalion and, and others um, at, at uh, Normandy and Omaha. Uh, Omaha Beach and Utah Beach in Normandy. Um, it's, a, it's a harrowing thought, but I want you to think about this. This is you. You're at war. And you're advancing under fire. That's what your problems are. They're the fire that is trying to stop you from being on your mission. That's the way to think about problems. And if you have a little bit of grit and you realize that's what problems are, they're God's way of, tr- of raising me, but they're also the enemy's way of trying to stop me from being about my father's business. Oh, it's on. No, they're not going to stop me. I'm not going to focus on my problems. I'm going to dodge obstacles and I'm going to um, get to cover as quickly as possible. I'm going to try to help my friends along the way. Advancing under fire. What did the Apostle Paul do with his life as we close? He did many things in his life, if you think about it. What did Paul do in his life? We could make a list. This is David Roseland's list. He raised the dead at least twice. He healed the sick. There were people that would be sick. They would take a handkerchief Paul had held. They would carry it from Paul's hand to the sick person and heal them with Paul's handkerchief. Paul preached the word of God. He traveled the Roman world. He suffered persecution everywhere he went. He planted churches, established in the church throughout Europe. He wrote letters. 
He trained pastors and teachers. Just some things off the top of my head that we know the Apostle Paul did. We also know he got bitten by a snake and it didn't kill him. It was a poison snake and he just shook it off and it didn't kill him. He survived a snake bite. This is what Paul did with his life. But here's the question. What is the best summary of what Paul did with his life? If you had to pick from this list, what's the best summary He preached the word and he planted churches establishing the body of Christ throughout Europe and it's still affecting us today, obviously. So this is the summary of Paul's life, his mission. These other things are part of, the, 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 they're part of it, but they're not the focus and that's really my objective in this study on, on mission is to say, what are, we, what are we really doing? We need to be like Paul, advancing under fire. God's plan for your life it's just like God's plan for the apostle's life, except you're not an apostle, but you do have the Holy Spirit. You don't have the specifics that the apostles had, but you do have the specifics for you. And it's the same Holy Spirit empowerment in the same mission. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. This is what we're here for. So my effort tonight has been to say the problems are real. You have to deal with them and the only way you can do that is a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the mission. That's how you continue the mission and the other piece is this, the the final parting thing here is this. If you're on mission, you are going to receive opposition. Let's make sure that the suffering, we're all going to suffer. Let's make sure we're suffering for Christ's sake. Let's make sure that we're, as Paul says, making up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for eternal life that we are living now, for the mission that's so clear from the Scriptures that we're to be a part of. We can't be the Apostle Paul. We can't be apostles. Your time for them has come and gone. We can't all be preachers. We can't all be teachers. We can't all be pastors or uh, evangelists. Um, we're not all called to administration, but there are uh, spiritual gifts. There's a spiritual gift, at least one, in each of us so that we can be on mission in the capacity that you've equipped us. We can all be participating in this great war effort whereby you are saving some out of the fire, where you are calling some out of this broken world with your gospel, and some are responding Father, it's your enterprise, it's your mission, and you've called us to it, and I pray that we would consider it our priority, that we would be focused on it, and that when we are oppressed, when we suffer health, money, or other concerns, we would always reconcile it back with being on mission, that these are obstacles which would attempt to stymie our progress, being about your business, but because of your spirit, we'll have the grit to say, no, we will advance under fire. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.